0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com.
1: Episode number 48 of that one time on tour is brought to you by the band Wanted Noise. Wanted Noise is a San Diego, California band formed in 2013 to carry on the energy of the 90s punk sound in the new millennium. Their latest release is a split EP with the Santa Barbara-based band Pet Meds out on 10-inch vinyl records. They are currently working on their debut full-length album titled *Next Generation*. For more information on the band, you can check them out at Instagram at WantedNoiseCA, Facebook forward slash WantedNoiseCA, and Bandcamp .bandcamp WantedNoise.Bandcamp.com. Now, here it is: their new single, *Cigarettes and Old Regrets*.
2: Feeling understood.
0: And it's those moments we'll help you remember the ones you're thinking about right now.
2: That feeling.
0: That feeling.
2: It's coming soon from Crowd Network.
0: Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app.
3: And subscribe now.
2: Yo, what's up? This is Rick Thorn, the Biker in Black, just saying congrats, bro, for hooking up with Jabberjaw Media. You're the man. Keep doing a kick-ass podcast
4: stay rad forever much love man keep it up peace out ricky got the quarters for the table and broke while i pulled hard on the sorrow and smoke raising up my bottle i looked for a chance as he set your glass down on the bar with a glance at me down at the horseshoe lounge Shuffleboard and neon light Down at the Horseshoe Lounge Cigarettes and whiskey night Hey, this
3: is slay Cleaves, and you're listening to
4: That One Time On Tour.
2: Run for the board this is go We'll be heading for the cities Another show for us to
4: play So get back in the back Tomorrow We'll do it We'll do it
1: all again Hey guys, what's going on? This is Chris Swinney. I am your host for that one time on tour. Thank you for joining me once again. If this is your first time tuning in, I do appreciate whatever brought you here. Uh, I'm going to try to provide some good content and hopefully you'll stick around. But uh, for everybody that is a regular, thank you so much for checking out last week's episode with my good friend Rob Perlman. We had a wonderful time chatting and hopefully we'll have Rob back in the future. But, uh, we're just going to keep rolling, man. This week, we've got a really good show for you. It's episode number 48. And we've got one of my favorite singer-songwriters in the entire world. His name is Slade Cleaves. And, uh, he's just, he's a prolific songwriter. He's got so many great songs. We used to listen to his stuff in the van when we'd be on tour back when I was with the Ataris. And I've met a lot of like, you know, punk and kind of metal hardcore guys that really dig Slade. He was really, kind of taken aback when I asked him to be on the show because, you know, he, he checked out the the past episodes and he said, the only band that I've heard of is Lucero and I don't even really know what they sound like. So it was really cool having Slade on. It's kind of a change of pace and uh, I just, I can't get enough of his music. I mean, I'm like a lot of you guys out there. I love punk. I love metal, but music just speaks to me and Slade, his music speaks to me. So before we get into my conversation with Slade, which I guarantee you're going to love, it's going to be a little bit different, but I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, I do have to tell you guys about a new sponsor. We have a brand new sponsor. They are called Artist Flags, and uh, they, they make backdrops and scrims and everything for bands when you go on the road, and they hooked us up fat, man. We've got these really cool... That one time on tour banners, I've got one in my studio at my house, which I am now calling HQ1 or Swinney HQ1. And I have another one at my studio where I teach guitar down at Muncie Music Center, and I'm calling that Swinney HQ2. So, uh, yeah, I listened to a podcast called Metal Up Your Podcast, which is about Metallica. It's, uh, Clint and Ethan down in Nashville talking about Metallica and they have all of their different places they record. They have HQ1, HQ2. So my tribute to them is now I have an HQ1 and an HQ2. So I don't know if you guys listen out there, but if you do, I love the podcast and, uh, There's your shout out. So maybe you guys can come on sometime and I would love to go on yours and talk about Metallica. That's, it's one of my favorite topics. Okay. So artist flags was what I was talking about. And then I jumped to something else, but artist flags is an amazing company. And you guys, if you have a band or a company or whatever, you need a scrim, you need a backdrop, you need vinyl flags. You need to hit them up, go over to artistflags.com or on any of the social medias at artist flags tell them that chris from that one time on tour sent you and they are amazing you guys are going to love them so check them out artistflags.com so now we are going to move on to a segment i've done a couple times i think i got away from it but i'm going to go back i'm going to do top five lists this is where you guys send me in your top five lists of different things and uh, then i have to tell my top five list of the category that you sent me So today's top five list comes in from Andrew from California, and he writes in, what are my top five venues to play on tour? So I'm going to go ahead and give you his list first, and then we'll get into my list. So Andrew's list is, he says he's got a disclaimer. He said, I've never toured, but his local California experience is as follows. So number five, he's got Slims in San Francisco, California. He said if for no reason other than he finally got to see Propagandi play there. And I think that's a wonderful reason. Propagandi is one of my favorite bands in the entire world. I'm trying right now to get some of the guys to come on the show, and I hope it works out. So, Andrew, you're one of my dudes. You like Propagandi, and uh, we're friends forever, man. So number four, Andrew has the Ivy Room in Oakland, California, and he just basically says they've been killing it lately. So I've never been to the Ivy Room, but it sounds cool. So if you guys are out there in Oakland, make sure you're supporting the Ivy Room. Coming in at number three, Andrew has Bottom of the Hill, San Francisco, California, and he puts also Solid, and I will agree with that. Um, I'm, uh, th- That's going to be on my list too, so that's one that we agree on. But uh, let's see. Number two, the Parkside, San Francisco, California. And Andrew puts, never fails. So the Parkside must be, or the Parkside, it's T-H-E-E, must be a really cool place. So go out and support the Parkside in San Francisco, California. And here it is, number one on Andrew's list, the Phoenix Theater in Petaluma, California. And he says he grew up going to shows there. Uh, I've played the, the Phoenix Theater in Petaluma. It's a, it's a really cool place. And, uh, yeah, you should go support them as well. Okay. So Andrew, here we go. My top five, I'm just going to go. I, I, this is kind of in order. Maybe this is random. Like this is just off the top of my head. So number five, a place that I really enjoyed playing. I haven't been there for a really long time. And, uh, some people might like it. might hate it. But I really, always loved playing the glass house in Pomona, California. Uh, we, they always had great crowds. I remember we, uh, we play I was playing there one time with the band Brazil. I was in a band called Brazil. It was on Fearless Records. And we went outside to smoke a cigarette or whatever before we played. And this guy threw an egg out of a car window and the drummer from Brazil, James, he caught the egg. It didn't bust or anything. I can't remember if he threw it back or not, but it was kind of a it was a really cool instance where he caught the egg and it didn't explode. So I have good memories of the glass house there in Pomona. But uh let's see, number four. I'm going to say CBGB's. Uh, it's not there any longer, but I played CBGB's a couple of times with a couple of different bands. And if for nothing else, the history of CBGB's, I mean, the bands that came out of there, I mean, the Ramones got their start there. I mean, so many bands played CBGB's and I mean, it was really gross and the sound was bad and Most of the time they didn't treat you very well, but it's just, you know, it's one of those institutions as far as punk rock goes. So yeah, number four for me is CBGBs. Uh, let's see. Number three. I'm just going to throw it out there. I'll go with bottom of the hill, which is what, uh, Andrew said for his number three. I'm going to put it at my number three as well. Uh, I played there many times. I played there one time with that same band Brazil. I think it was the same tour that we played at the, the glass house, but, um, I just remember that we were on tour with a band, I believe the band was called Engine Down. Uh yeah, Engine Down. They were on Lookout Records for a while. They're a really, really good band. I think some of the guys used to be in Denali before that. But um we were playing at bottom of the hill and uh they didn't want to pay us. <laughs> we had a guarantee and then they didn't want to pay us. And I was kind of, you know, I guess I'm still kind of a douchebag, but back then I was a big douchebag, big, you know, like big prick that didn't take a lot of shit from people. And uh, I said, okay, you're not going to pay us. Well, I'll just, I'll just sit right here at the bar until you pay me. And literally, like four or five hours later, I mean, it was the sun was getting ready to come up. They were so mad. And like the security guard, he was trying to take me, and I was, no, I'm just going to sit here. And I was being a complete prick. But uh, they ended up paying us, and we left, and they told us never to come back. But I did come back with different bands after that. I don't think they remembered me. So uh, <laughs> I, I doubt those people are still working at Bottom of the Hill. If they are, and you listen, I am the asshole that sat at the bar for five hours before. so you'd give us our 150 bucks so we could get to the next show. So thank you very much. Bottom of the hill. I still love you. You're on my top five list. I'm going to say number two, probably any house of blues in the country. I know there's better ones. And then there's kind of ones that are kind of sketchy. But every time I played a house of blues, the sound was impeccable and the staff was great. And I just, the acoustics in the rooms. I mean, I know some of them are like, you know, they, they're reworked. They maybe weren't really built as a theater for music or whatever, but the acoustics are normally great. And uh, yeah, I just really enjoy playing house of blues. So I'm going to say number two, any house of blues that I've played in the United States. Number one, this is kind of, I mean, a lot of you guys probably agree with me at this one, but number one, I'm going to say chain reaction out in Anaheim, California. We just always, every band I played there with, we just had killer crowds, man. And, And the people were just Always so nice. It didn't matter if I was in some little tiny band or some big band. It was, I don't know, Anaheim is a good town and Chain Reaction was always good. And, you know, you can't beat leaving Chain Reaction and going to get in and out anytime you're on the West Coast. I know you guys that on the West Coast. I'm sure you love in and out, but when you can't get it like me, I live in the middle of the country. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a big deal. So yeah, Chain Reaction was always great. I just remember playing gigs there and then, uh, eating in and out and just, I remember hanging out in the parking lot of Chain Reaction quite a bit and talking to kids. And it's, I just have really fond memories of Chain Reaction. And it's just like, it's a little place, but when it's packed, man, it's insane. So, uh, yeah, Chain Reaction is, it's a really good place. That's my number one this, these will probably change. Maybe I'll come back and revisit this later on, but for right now, those are my top five. So Andrew, thank you so much for sending in the top five list. If you guys want to send in a top five list, you can uh, hit me up on Instagram or Facebook or or Twitter or wherever it's at T O T O T podcast, or you can even email it to me. It's T O T O T podcast at gmail.com. So yeah, I have rambled enough I'm going to get into my conversation. Make sure that you are following us on all of the social medias. Subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. You guys know how to do that. But, uh, this is it. This is my conversation with Slade Cleaves. I know you guys are going to enjoy this. Like I told you, it's a little bit different, but, uh, I think you're really going to like it. And his music is just, is just amazing. So here we go. My conversation with Mr. Slade Cleaves. And I'm on the line with Mr. Sled Cleaves. How you doing today, man?
3: Good. How you doing?
1: I'm doing wonderful. I, I got to tell you, I'm I'm very excited to have you on the show today. I'm kind of a, a punk rock metal guy, but you are one of my favorite songwriters, I have to say.
3: Well, yeah, I appreciate you that tracked me down into a, like a whole other ecosystem here. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's, it's kind of weird. My show, I have mostly, you know, like I said, metal and punk musicians on the show. But uh, I was in a band called the Ataris. And uh, a mainstay in the van when we were on tour was uh, your album "Broke Down." We listened to it all the time. Wow! So I, I don't know if you have if you knew that you had such a, a reach into the punk community, but you, I think you really do.
3: You know, I didn't, I didn't. That's the first I've heard of it. And uh, I I had my brief little time as a punk rocker when I was about nineteen, but yeah. <laughs> uh, morphed into a folky pretty soon after that.
1: Well, I think it's kind of a it's kind of a transition that a lot of punk rockers go through like you get so enamored in all of the heavy kind of music that once in a while it's good to just listen to something a little bit nicer and prettier and i think that's where i've got a lot of my friends that are totally into punk rock and metal and and they're big fans of you know folk stuff and outlaw country stuff and i think that's kind of where it came from so i just want to say thank you very much for that record i've listened to all your records but that record really spoke to me
3: Oh, that's awesome to hear, man. Yeah, there's really there there is more of a um <clears throat> there is more of a crossover between punk and folk than people realize in, in that uh you know, I, I grew up on bands like the Clash. I walked around for two two years saying the Clash is the only band that matters. And there's something about that DIY aesthetic that transferred from that punk ethos to the sort of folky You know, just traveling around in your car ethos. They're not that far apart.
1: And I I think a lot of the, you know, the early folk stuff, you know, the protest music, that has a lot of parallels with punk rock as well.
3: Exactly. And, you know, Joe Strummer, you know, how we got his nickname is he was a busker. He was a folk singer in the subways in London singing Woody Guthrie songs.
1: I, I think it's cool how music brings people together because you you probably, I know I talked to your wife, Karen, when I set this up, and I think she was a little taken aback because I said, check out some of the podcasts. And she's like, eh, you'd never really had anybody like Slade on there before. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Indeed. I, I looked at your roster and the only band name I recognized was Lucero. And uh, I listened to that episode today to just get a feel for what you talk about. And I was fascinated by Again, we talked about some of the same things about you know uh, heavy music being not that far away from Americana or alt country or stuff like that.:
1: yeah, those guys, those guys are great. Brian was on the show, and he was a little bit scared to be on the show, I think, but we had a a wonderful conversation, and I think it's really cool that you know i'm I'm getting away from just having punk and metal musicians on the show. I've actually got a lot of other musicians and different genres of music I want to get, so thank you for kind of being my gateway into that. That's my honor. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your past. Um, I know that you were born in Washington, D.C., and uh, you were raised in Maine, correct? That's right. When when did you get into music? What was like your entry point into knowing that music was important to you?
3: It was real early. My folks grew up in the 50s and 60s, and so I had a really great record collection as a baby, and I remember being fascinated with their vinyl collection when I was three, four years old. And thankfully, they had really good taste. So I was, I was spinning the Beatles and and Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly and Mahalia Jackson and Pete Seeger and and uh, just Johnny Cash and Buck Owens and Bob Dylan and Janis Joplin and Chris Christopherson and just really all the greats. I was exposed to. I always thank my parents for not being Barry Como fans.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Did you did you know right away that you wanted to play guitar and you wanted to be involved in music, or were you more of a fan at first?
3: I was definitely a fan in those first uh, grade school years, but I remember when I was seven, I, I asked my parents if I could get a guitar and get guitar lessons. Uh, so I guess pretty early on, I was thinking in terms of participating, and for some reason, they didn't want me to do guitar. They wanted me to do piano, so I did piano lessons and earned my Beethoven for a few years. Uh, but when I was 16, uh, when I was 15, I did, I did Beethoven at my piano recital. And when I was 16, I got together with a a sax player friend from high school and we did jungle land at my recital, Springsteen.
1: That's awesome, man.
3: (laughs) And that's when I started being in bands in high school.
1: What, uh, could you tell me maybe if you remember like the first song you actually wrote?
3: Well, there were a few abortive attempts, I think in high school songs that never made it past my notebook um and then i think the next i guess in in early college i was in a uh my first original band we did a mix of originals and covers this was this is in like 83 so we play a u2 song then we do one of ours and we play uh what else did we play big country remember that band from scotland yeah Yeah, definitely we're that kind of new av kind of band and and our I wrote three or four songs for that band that don't really exist anymore. And then the next batch was when uh, later in college, um, I was in Ireland actually. And that's when I switched from keyboard to guitar. I just kind of taught myself just enough chords to accompany myself as a, a street singer, a busker in Cork, Ireland. And that's when I started writing my own batch of sort of folky americana songs and a couple of those still survive today
1: i I had in my notes that i I saw that you spent a year in ireland or maybe a little bit more in ireland what led you to go to ireland your junior year in college and and you know what was it like busking in ireland that's got to be a unique situation i'm sure that affected how you wrote songs and how you viewed music
3: yeah it was a huge influence um going to ireland was kind of on a whim A, a girl my college girlfriend was of Irish descent and she decided it'd be a great adventure if, if we went over together for our junior year abroad. Uh, and I was up for, I was along for it. I had no real interest in Ireland in itself, but I was very attached to this girlfriend at the time. Uh, and we pretty much broke up on the way over there. So <laughs> uh, there I was in my little one bedroom apartment with cold water bathroom up the hallway. And uh, I had a suitcase full of cassettes and, and a guitar, and I was totally alone. You know, I had no family and no friends, no car, no phone, no TV, no radio, just uh, a Walkman and a bunch of cassettes and and a guitar, and walking around the streets of Cork. It's I don't know what it's like now, but 30 years ago, it was a very vibrant downtown scene. There were no malls, shopping malls, yeah, uh, and cineplexes. Everything was downtown. The movie theaters, the shopping centers. Um, and the people and pedestrians. Uh so it's a great place to be a busker. There's a bunch of bunch of pedestrian only sidewalks and they're, they're, yeah, any night in Cork, which is not a big city, a hundred thousand, like that, you'd see uh five or six buskers on the various street corners and it was everything from traditional Irish flute players or uh Irish bagpipe players, alien pipe players, uh to folk singer songwriters like me to uh There was even an escape artist who used to perform (laughs) around the corner for me. So it was a very vibrant scene, and uh, it kept me in uh, Guinness money for my college year there.
1: (laughs) That's awesome, man. So when you left Ireland after that experience, did you feel like a a pretty confident musician after doing that? I know busking from the people that I know that have done it, it kind of is almost like a boot camp when you're playing music.
3: Yeah, that's exactly how I looked at it. I uh, had never sung and played for people before and so i uh i sang a few songs in my cover bands i guess but i'd never been the main guy and i was nervous about it and i i'm a shy guy but by nature and I, I there was no way i was going to get in front of a room of people watching me so i just figured that and also figured that the first few times i did it i, I would suck like every anytime you try the first try something for the first time you're no good at it yeah. so I, I uh, was self-conscious, and so I thought, well, if I sing on the street, then people are free to just walk by. They're, they're not even going to stop and listen unless they are interested, or unless I do get my act together and, and start being good at this. So uh, it was a way to train my, get my uh, guitar chords down and to learn a bunch of songs and to learn how to project my voice over the, the sounds of the street and the city. So yeah, it was a really great formative period. I, I learned I remember I learned a song a day for about a month and a half. So well, that's I awesome. enough material to play. I don't know how my young brain could do that, could <laughs> do that today, but uh, it was good for me.
1: Did you have like a certain corner picked out, or was was there any kind of like competition between the buskers back then?
3: There was a little bit of an etiquette. There was uh, one guy who was also in college who I kind of modeled myself after. His name was uh, Richard Hennessy. He was a fellow student at ucc and he played your neil young and your van morrison and stuff like that but he just uh he, he played in a couple different pitches that she, that was the name of your place when he played it was a pitch and they were like i said five or six really good ones on the pedestrian streets that weren't too noisy and that lots of people would walk by and there was room for people to gather if you started to get a crowd so uh it was first come first serve uh i never got uh Hounded out by anybody.
1: <laughs> That's cool. I just figured maybe some of those Irish guys, like, who's this American guy out here busking? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, the Irish are pretty welcoming people. You may have noticed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, after you left Ireland, you came back to the States. Did you go directly back home to Maine?
3: Uh, I finished up college down in Boston, and then I moved back to Maine and settled in Portland for about three years, uh, where I started uh, a band called the Moxie Men, which is kind of a proto Proto Americana, old country band where we played. Um, we, we kind of prided ourselves on, on being a mix of kind of punky stuff and and like Husker Group and replacements and awesome um, and stuff like that. Plus plus Hank Williams and Haley Jackson and, and our own songs, which were my songs, which were I was just starting to write.
1: Did I did I read correctly on the internet that uh, your brother was in that band with you? Correct. Yep. Did you guys often often play together, or was that like the only time you guys played together?
3: Um, That was the only band we played in together, and we had uh, a few different versions of that band, one in Maine, and then uh, he followed me down to Texas, and we played in that band uh, for a little while, and then uh, his young wife got pregnant, and he decided he needed to get a real job, so yeah. uh, I became a solo artist, and...
1: So you, you mentioned moving down to Texas. I mean, I know now that you, you're, you're kind of stationed or not stationed, but you, you live in Austin, Texas, which has a very vibrant music scene. It's kind of one of the places that, you know, people move to LA, Nashville or Austin, you know? So Mm -hmm. was that kind of the driving force when you wanted to go to Texas?
3: Yeah, indeed. Uh, after a few years in Portland, I felt like I'd kind of grown as much as I could in that town. It's a nice little town, artsy town, but it's, it's only about 60,000 people. So, you know, you can play once a month at the local gig and then, or once a week in the bar, but, you know, there's really nowhere to build a career out of a, a small town like that. So I started looking at LA and New York, and they were too big for a small town guy like me. And uh, Seattle was too wet, and Minneapolis was too cold, and <laughs> Athens was kind of played out. And we checked out Nashville, and that seemed too commercial. And Austin just seemed like the perfect place. And this was in 1991 when South by was just getting started. And that was an exciting thing. And I grew up watching the TV show, Austin city limits. So I I had a little bit of a feel for the town. I was a fan of Joe Ely. And I, I just thought, um, if I could just go to Austin and open up shows for Joe Ely, I'd learn how to do this.
1: That's great, man. So when you did, did you ever have that feeling? Like I'm from Indiana, my band had some success and, you know, went out to California for a while, but being in Indiana, it almost felt like it was easier to kind of be a, you know, a big fish in a small pond. And then when you go somewhere like in Austin or like in LA, it doesn't really matter how good you are. There's just so many bands. Did you feel kind of lost when you got there? Definitely.
3: It was brutal because you're right in Portland, Maine. I think the very first gig I did with some Moxie men, um, we got a really nice write-up in the local paper. And it was like, oh, here's the band on the scene. And we're headlining our own shows within a few months. But uh, I remember getting the, getting down to Austin and thinking, okay, I'll, I'll be on the cover of the Chronicle in five years, maybe. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's been twenty-seven years, and I still haven't been on the cover of the Chronicle yet. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a tough town to break into.
1: So you move down to, to Austin. Uh, things are getting a little bit better. When you're, you're putting out records, by that point, or like. I know your first record was, was your first, let me see, I've got my notes right here. I'm just wanting to make sure I don't miss it. 1990, you put out The Promise was your debut cassette. Was that when you were in Maine?
3: Yeah, that was still when I was in Maine. And that's all I had in my press kit is a seven song cassette when I arrived in Austin. Um, But I, you know, I, I sent the cassette around to the clubs that I thought I should be playing at. I didn't hear back from a single one. It was just, I went back to busking. I went down on 6th Street, found a nice pitch and started busking there and started doing the open mics, just starting from scratch. But uh, within a couple of months, I think it was even maybe in just a month or two, uh, two guys walked past me while I was busking and they stopped in their tracks and they said, hey, we just, we just opened a brand new recording studio and we need to try it out on someone. Will you try it out for us? And so <laughs> I made my... I made a whole album pretty much for free, practically. That's awesome. Um, for my first that was my first CD release when I my first record that uh I made when I got to Texas.
1: So when you were in Texas and you said you were busking and you know you were you were you're trying to to make it there with all the bands that are in Austin, I read on the internet you had some pretty unique jobs over those years. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Specifically, I want to hear about the drug testing job.
3: Yeah, that's the most uh newsworthy one I, i've done i've done the classic pizza delivery and working at sears and you know, all that kind of day labor and everything uh but again in my first couple months in austin i saw a billboard advertising uh, money for uh, healthy male volunteers and i checked it out and it was it's phase one medical research trials that every drug has to go through before it gets fda approval they gotta Test it out on musicians first, you know. So <laughs> I did that a few times a year for six, seven, eight years, I guess, until "Broke Down" came out, and, and I started actually uh, going into the black after that. So it was yeah. it was it was, eight, it was eight years in Austin of, of struggle. Yeah.
1: Was there ever any drug or anything that they made you take that you were kind of worried about?
3: <laughs> um. I tried to avoid the nasty ones um they they give you quite a bit of information ahead of time to let you know what you're getting into and also uh, uh when the internet came online in the mid early mid nineties, I used that to do my own research, and I would discover that certain drugs were already on the market in Europe, for instance, or available in a different formulation so i you know some of the drugs I took were really benign. Like, yeah. um, one of the studies I did was for a liquid aspirin, I think for bear for children or something. So okay. it was just ev- every new formulation. they have to run through this test. So I did everything from that to wh- no, no more wacky experimental things <laughs> first tested on humans. When I was desperate, I'd do those.
1: So no, no side effects this, this far down the road, right?
3: No, not yet. 30 <laughs> years, well, 25 years later. Yeah. No, uh, no third eyeball or anything.
1: Well, you brought up Broke Down again, and I do want to talk about that record because, like I said, that's the one that spoke to me kind of the most. Uh, there was something on that record that I believe it's on that record um, that I'm very, very interested in kind of hearing the story about. I'm, I've am i been a fan of Woody Guthrie for a while. My, my stepfather is a blues kind of folk musician. I know he loves Woody Guthrie. He was really excited that I was speaking with you today on, on the podcast as well, but... There's a song on there that you kind of, I guess you took Woody Gut- Guthrie lyrics that he hadn't finished and you like wrote a song. Could you give me the, the story about that?
3: Yeah. Um, I, I got deeply into Woody Guthrie when I was a busker sort of through Springsteen actually. Cause uh, when Nebraska came out in 1981, I guess too, that album just really struck me. Um, and I, I read that he, uh, he was kind of going back into the American song for the inspiration For that album, talking talking, uh, Hank Williams and Woody Guthrie, et cetera. So uh, I was really into him, and my wife uh, bought me a book in 1991, I think, that just came out. It's called Pastures of Plenty. And it's a collection of all the stuff that had been sitting in the Woody Guthrie archives since he he died in the 60s. And they just released it in the early 90s. Uh, And this is when Woody's daughter, Nora, was just taking over uh, control of the archives. Was one of the first things she did was help release all these uh, poems and unfinished songs that were never recorded or lost, and letters to the editor and comics he wrote to his kids. Woody was just a, a creative machine that just did nothing but created yeah. stuff all his life, it seems like. Uh, anyway, I, I found some, some lyrics in that book, Pastures of Plenty, that really resonated with me, and I thought, well... I'm going to put these to lyrics and sing them at the Woody Guthrie tribute show this year in Austin. Wow, that's awesome. And, uh, yeah. So my buddy, my buddy Jimmy LaFave heard it that night and he was, uh, getting to know Nora Guthrie and the family. Um, and he lobbied on my hat on my behalf to get permission, uh, to record the song with my melody. Yeah.
1: That that's awesome man that's that's got to feel kind of weird somebody that you know is kind of a hero of yours that you actually got to take something that he wrote and actually put it to music i mean did you did you feel it like is. it like wasn't good enough at first or did you just kind of like you know get really really like precise and just want to make sure that it was awesome
3: um i did it almost on a whim because there was this woody got through tribute coming up in austin and i was a new kid in town and i wanted to Wow, people! You know, I wanted to yeah. impress people with a really obscure Woody song, so I basically made a new Woody song. Out of these lyrics, and uh, like I said, um, Jimmy heard it and hooked me up with the Guthrie Clan, and and so I didn't have. I was I was young and and, and confident enough not to worry about the implications down the road. But yeah. you know, just last week I got a royalty statement. Or This Morning I Am Born Again, and it, you know, it says Cleves slash Guthrie on it, you know, to have my name next to Woody's on a song. It's that's crazy. Cool. That
1: is awesome, yeah. man. <laughs> I just, I don't know, having your name next to one of your heroes, that's got to be really cool. That's the best. So um, I also want to talk about, I've been looking over some of the accolades and things that have happened in your career. And in 1992, you won the New Folk uh, award, I think, at the Kerrville Folk Festival, which has also been won by Steve Earle and Robert Earl Keane. that had to be pretty cool. How did that come about?
3: Yeah, it was amazing too. Just early, early years where uh, you know I came here with nothing pretty much, and like I said, I uh, just started busking and playing open mics. And like I mentioned, I, I found those recording studio guys while I was busking, and at the open mics, I met this guy named Mark Viator and his. His uh, girlfriend Susan Maxey, they were doing the open mic too as a duo, and uh, we struck up a friendship. And they said, "Hey, man, there's this there's this contest coming up in a couple months out in Kerrville, and you know you should send a song in." So I just did a quick demo with my buddy Mark and sent two songs in. And lo and behold, I got invited to play. I think they invite you know a couple dozen finalists to to perform to perform live at the festival, and then they chip, and then they pick uh, six winners. Uh, so I was picked as one of the six winners that year, again, getting into that, uh, club with Robert Earl Keane and Lucinda Williams and Steve Earl and Hosa and all sorts of greats. So it was a, it was a real validation that I'd made the right move to Texas and, and that I was on the right path.
1: So do, do you play a lot around Texas now? I mean, I've seen some of your tour schedule stuff and it's kind of all over the place, but do you try to, you know, at least play Texas as much as possible since you're down there in Austin?
3: um i it's it's it, we play Texas more than anywhere else, but not much more because there's just so much of the country. I was lucky enough with down to get some airplay around the country here and there, so we pretty much play coast to coast uh and that takes a good part of the year as you a former touring guy knows it's uh takes a lot of energy to get yeah. from town to town um so usually when we get back to Texas, it's usually time to Uh, We take some time to, you know, fix up all the stuff around the house that's been neglected while we've been gone and and work on songs and and work on accounting and all that. So uh, I'd say we're, we're, we're traveling about half the year. And when we're in Texas, we try to play every couple of months at least.
1: So I know on on your records there's always I mean not always, but there's normally like, you know, instrumentation drums and whatnot, like a full band. But it seems like most of your touring is solo. Do you prefer that or, you know, do you ever do tours with full bands? Like how how does that go?
3: Uh with Broke Down when Broke Down came out, I was touring as a little trio, it was upright bass and then a utility player on guitar or slide or or mandolin and fiddle, something like that. And that was a cool little, little unit. Uh and then with the success of Broke Down, I was able to to put a full band together, bass, drums, guitar, and keyboard sometimes. And that was a thrill because you know I grew up listening to Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen. I was just sort of band-oriented, I was in bands in high school and college. Um, so it was always a goal to get back into the, the band scheme. But after a couple of years of that, it was apparent that I just didn't quite have enough audience to, to make that happen and come home with any money. So yeah. uh, I downsized. The band about 10 years ago so it's just uh it's usually just me and one other guy or gal and that's i that totally it perfectly fits the venues i play which are the kind of 100 seat coffee house small theater kind of places and it fits my audience which is about 100 people give or take around the country so you know just trying to piece, put a full band into rooms like that is it's not economical and it's just not very logistically feasible anymore to with all Expenses of travel with so many people.
1: What do you, What do you tour in right now? Like a van, or what, I mean, you could probably just tour in like a a big car, right? <laughs> if you wanted to.
3: Almost, yeah. I started in a Dodge Dart Sport, and then okay. got a van. and I had a had a really nice conversion van for a long time, and then I got 11 miles to the gallon, so we had to downsize <laughs> on that. Too. Yeah, I've been in a minivan for the last few years. Yeah.
1: Well, that's cool. Yeah. My, my, one of my bands back in the day, all we wanted to do, we always had a decent van. But we're like, man, we got to get an RV. So we got like this 1976 RV that got eight <laughs> miles to the gallon. And we realized really quickly on like on the way to Florida, that this probably wasn't the best economical decision, you know?
3: Yeah. Yeah. it's a tough one. <laughs>
1: So there's something that I was really interested in asking you about as he's one of my favorite authors. You have a pretty famous fan. It says on the internet, he's your number one fan. Uh, Stephen King. He's also from Maine. Uh, where did that connection come from? Was it the main thing? Uh,
3: that might've been part of it. I think, I think he heard a song of mine on XM radio and, uh, looked me up out of that. So I think that was the connection. Um, and I'm sure when he found out I was from Maine, that, that, that uh spurred on the his interest in me a little bit uh those main guys like to stick together you know so, yeah yeah uh, yeah he's been very generous he's uh he wrote the liner notes for the next record um and we saw him at a festival in Maine and uh he came to the came to the CD booth and uh bought a couple CDs and he had me sign them to him and and then uh he said you know if you ever need liner notes give me a call and I said well how do I get a hold of you so he scribbled his email down on scrap of paper and handed it to me he said now don't give this to any crazy people <laughs> and I, I i just put out a record so i emailed him about two years later when i had a new disc and he said sure send it and i sent him a copy and he sent me a line of notes the next day
1: <laughs> that's insane man that's uh yeah I don't know. I I didn't know anything about that. Like I've I've researched you a little bit, and I was actually you know watching a couple of different things on YouTube, like interviews and whatnot. And somebody mentioned Stephen King, and I'm like, oh yeah, he's from Maine as well. It kind of made sense. But that's that's just awesome. To, were you a fan of his? Like when when you found out he liked your band, or he liked you?
3: You know what? My my wife is a huge fan. So we have all the books. I've only read a couple, but she's read them all
1: your wife's name is Karen. I want to give a shout out to Karen. Thank you so much for setting this up. Uh, does she tour with you as well?
3: Yeah. yeah. She uh, she does all the booking and all the management and all the tour management as well. So she, she's a road manager. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Who does most of the driving?
3: <laughs> she does a good chunk of it, but it's me and her. Because
1: yeah. that was the thing in the, back in the day, you know, before buses and everything, it was always like, who's going to drive? Who's going to drive? Who's going to stay sober? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, this is called that one time on tour. And uh, I don't know if, you know, you've thought about this at all, but I always ask my guests, you know, is there anything that just sticks out in your mind from maybe the early days or from, you know, present day, just some story or something crazy? Because, you know, a lot of people don't get to live that life on the road and and crazy things tend to happen. And I I always like to hear, you know, stories from what happens when other people are on the road. Do you have anything like that you could tell us about?
3: Oh, I'm sure I do. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess just the absurdity of some of it when it's in your early years and you'll you'll go anywhere for a gig. Yeah, uh, I remember once we were uh, we were doing a. I think we got invited to this festival in Mallorca, which is an island off the coast of Spain. We thought, oh, this sounds awesome, so we we booked a European tour, mostly England, uh, and but we were, did it through a record label, I think. And so we kind of trusted them to, to do the routing and the, and the hotels and the flights. And, you know, so we ended up, I think our flight out of London was at one in the morning or something. And we get into staying at three or four in the morning. Um, but sure enough, the promoter is there to pick us up and we're exhausted. And this is when I had the upright bass player and yes. a guitar player. So, uh, promoter shows up in these two little tiny European cars and <laughs> it's like there's no way we're gonna fit in here but somehow I remember cramming ourselves into this car I remember trying to slide into the back seat of the car and I just wouldn't fit and I took the wallet out of my back pocket and that was gave me just enough room to get into this car <laughs> it was so tiny and so we played this gig and it was awesome This was just European style and they flew us back to England for a big festival the next day. And so we got to England. This band dropped us off at this roadside travel lodge at 10 in the morning. And the place doesn't open until three in the afternoon. And so thankfully it wasn't rainy. But we just we just sat in the ground for five hours waiting for this hotel to open. just <laughs> amazed that. We couldn't even get into the lobby or anything. There was nobody there. It was yeah. bizarre. I've never seen that since. But you know, it was it was those kind of crazy travel things that uh, that bond us as a unit, I think, and, and make us feel uh, just. Um, I don't know what it is. You know, it's just the brothers in arms kind of thing when it goes through ordeals like that. It definitely brings you closer together.
1: Definitely. So you said, you know, you've, you've done some stuff over in Europe. Do you have a, I mean, I know you spend a lot of time in, in Ireland, but do you have like a favorite country internationally that you've actually played or just been to like on a trip?
3: Um, I love Ireland, but I don't end up playing there very much. It's not, not enough audience there. Uh, our best audience is in the UK. We've we've been playing there for 20 years now and built up a really it's good fan base there. We have over to uh, the Netherlands some, yeah. You know, we did a little bit of Scandinavia last year, so um, yeah. It's 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 getting harder and harder as I get older to be so far from home and, the, and traveling gets wearing on you. I'm in my early fifties now, so I don't know how much longer we'll be going over there. It's uh, yeah, pretty pretty sweet just to play in Texas nowadays.
1: <laughs> uh, I was, I was just wondering, do you have any children?
3: No kids. No, we traveled. With a dog for sixteen years. Wow, <laughs> that was a good dog. Yeah,
1: yeah, that was one thing. Like I have, I have two small children now. I just turned forty. I have an almost three year old and a one year old, and I just, I can't imagine being on the road. I've got so many friends that are on the road now with kids, and I, I respect the hell out of them, but I just, I just don't think I could do it.
3: I'm amazed that some people can make that work, and yeah, just, it's the Arlo Guthrie kind of family family in the bus on the van on the road
1: tour. So, uh, yeah, power to them. Yeah. If I could afford to like, you know, take my whole family with me, but you yeah. know, you know, sometimes on the road, it's not the best place for families. <laughs> right. right, Well, Slade, I tell you what, man, I've had a wonderful time talking to you today. I just, one more time, I want to reiterate that, uh, you are one of my favorite songwriters. I know that might be, that might sound weird to you, but it, it is. I love the song, uh, uh, drinking days is one of my favorite songs. I love the acoustic version where it's just you. And then I also like the band version. Uh, what new year's day, I think is another one. Um, yep. I'm just, I'm just trying to think of all the great songs, man. And I just want to thank you so much for, uh, kind of opening me up to some different stuff that maybe I wouldn't listen to normally. And, yep. uh, I love the fact that you came on the show. It makes me very, very happy. I hope you're having a good time. Definitely. Well, I want to know about the future. Like, what do you have coming up? Any new, you know, record or any, any tour dates or anything? What do you have coming up in the future?
3: Well, Karen and I are busy uh, working on the summer tour season, which starts, uh, in May, I guess, dates in Texas in April and then fly up to New England, uh, for some shows in May and then a lot in July, a little time off in August and September. And then, more shows in October. So they're, they're all trickling up onto the website as they get confirmed in the next few weeks. So you can find me at Um And I'm supposed to be writing songs this month, but uh, <laughs> that's going getting going kind of slow. And always uh, I'm at that. I'm at that bottom of the cycle where it's been a year and a half since the new record has been out and I've done supporting it. And it's time to start working on the new batch. So I'm starting at zero again, just that, starting that cycle.
1: Do you, uh, have you always kind of done the DIY thing or did you have like a manager or a booking agent? I mean, what, what do you prefer? Do you prefer like kind of keeping it in house or, or do you prefer having like a lot of, you know, a lot of people on the team?
3: Yeah, I've kind of, I've kind of done it each way. Um, I, I built up a team in the late nineties and then when Broke Down came out, I, I think, I don't think I had a manager at that point and Karen was working a day job supporting us uh, in the lean years. So at one point I did have a management and Nashville looking agency. Uh, and I guess it, it's really great when it works and, and sometimes it works great. And sometimes it's just more work than it's worth. Sometimes, you know, when you're yeah. the little guy, when you're the little guy on the roster, you spend more time trying to get a hold of your guy than, than it would take you through just booking yourself, you know? So yeah, definitely. Uh, it's hard to find just the right team when you find the right people it's awesome but at our level which is sort of a like I said you know 100 seat venues around the country it's it's, it's not enough money to to share it with a much of a team so it, it's I'm really lucky that Darren is is able to do those administrative jobs those management chores, um and keep it all in-house and that just makes things a lot simpler and we get to keep all the money and Working
1: great. Yeah, it's always great when there's no hands in the cookie jar, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, Slade, I've got two more short questions for you, then I'm going to let you get out of here. I know I've taken up enough of your time. Um, first off, I want to know: Are there any bands out there that you're listening to now? Like you've spoken a lot about your influences and what you grew up listening to, but as far as you know, 2019, is there anything out there that is that's really turning you on right now as far as music goes?
3: Um, you know, I most of the people i listen to are colleagues you know just people i work with or people i run into all the time so um there's people putting out records recently uh my my friend adam carroll has a new record coming out he's a singer songwriter of the kind of the john prine guy clark kind of mold he's one of the best adam carroll and uh my friend billy harvey is just an amazing musician he produced a song for me years back but uh He's been putting out fantastic records for the past uh, 15 years or so. Billy Harvey, check him out.
1: Well, I tell you, you were you mentioned earlier you listened to Brian from Lucero's episode. You should definitely check out their new record, Among the Ghosts. I think you'd really enjoy it.
3: Yeah, I, I went on YouTube just a little bit, and I thought, you know, I've heard of these guys over the years, but I, I just never checked them out for whatever reason, and I really did like what I hear, so I'm definitely going to do that.
1: Cool. Well, uh, the last question, and this is kind of the funny one, <clears throat> I, I don't, I don't take you as like much of a, much of a pop music guy or anything like that, but I do know that uh, everybody has guilty pleasures. Do you have a guilty pleasure or two that you could tell us musically?
3: <laughs> like a modern thing,
1: like modern something. or, or old, whatever, whatever, man, just something that you maybe not. Anybody would think you would listen to. Oh
4: uh, yeah. Hmm.
1: Now the tough uh, one, right?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, uh, hmm, let me think for a minute. um <laughs> something that i'd like I'd be embarrassed to let people know of.
1: yeah, um, or just maybe that <laughs> just is kind of wow, that came out of left field, you know,
3: <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't think of anything right now. you know what's weird is I remember when I was like um when I see uh top ten lists from the seventies and eighties, like uh, top forty radio lists, yeah, you know, I know every single song and every artist and I can sing the song. Whereas for the past 10 years, I don't know a single artist or a single song that's on the top 40. <laughs> and it's just amazing. I just, that's what growing old is about, I guess.
1: I mean, it's, it's totally weird for me. Like I said, I just turned 40 and I teach guitar full-time for a living and these kids come in and they want to learn songs by these groups and I've I've never heard of them before. And I feel like I'm yeah. still fairly plugged in you know, to the internet and social media, but stuff just gets past you and I guess it's because I – you know, if I had it my way, I would just listen to stuff that came out 20 years ago. Right. Yeah, I
3: guess that's the way it always is, I guess. Yeah.
1: Well, Slade, I just want to say thank you once again. Everybody out there listening, make sure to go to sladecleaves.com and you can check out all the tour dates and all the other information. I liked, uh, there's a spot on your website called Stories where you kind of write little ramblings and stuff. That was really cool. Yeah.
3: Well, thanks for tracking me down. You do a really great job
1: with this. Oh, well, thank you very much, man. And uh, you know, when the new record comes out in the future, come on back and we'll talk about it, okay? Oh, that
3: sounds
1: great. Cool. Thank you so much. And I want to say thank you to your lovely wife, Karen, for setting this up. And uh, I will talk to you soon, man. Thank you once again. All right.
3: Thank you.
1: Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So there it was, my conversation with Mr. Slade Cleaves. Slade is such a laid-back guy. It was an awesome chance to get to speak with him. Um... Chris Rowe from the Ataris, uh, when I, when I posted, I was going to be speaking with Slade. He's like, whoa, you got Slade on the show. Like it's just, I don't know. We, we love him. My stepdad, who is like majorly into the blues and like folk stuff loves him. It's just, it's not even a generational thing. I think it's just good music speaks for itself. And Slade is definitely an amazing songwriter. So I hope you guys will go check him out on tour. He's got some dates he just posted. Over at SladeCleaves.com, I believe is the website. Uh, Just search for Slade Cleaves. It's S-L-A-I-D-C-L-E-A-V-E-S. And uh, he's on Instagram and Facebook and all kinds of stuff. So check him out. Go see him on tour. Listen to him on Spotify. Just support him because he's, he's such a, such a talent and such a, such a great guy. I also want to give props out to his wife, Karen. Thank you so much for being so easy to work with. And, uh, hopefully we'll have Slade back in the future. So guys, I'm going to get out of here. There's not a lot else to talk to you about. I do want to say please check out our Patreon uh become a patron, get more involved. There's a cool community that we've started over there. We're up to eight patrons, so you can be number nine if you if you get on it really quick. But um I'm gonna be posting a lot of cool, like exclusive material, different episodes that maybe, you know, shorter episodes and just little things. I'm thinking about doing this thing where it's like that one time on tour radio where maybe I just, you know, tell some stories and play some songs that I like. I don't know, but check it out. It's over at patreon.com forward slash T O T O T podcast. I want to give a shout out to all the guys over at Jabberjaw. This is my second episode on the network and I love Jabberjaw. They've been so great in helping me do all kinds of stuff and it feels so good to be on a network like Jabberjaw. And I want to give a shout out to my favorite podcasts over there. You know, Shane told from Silverstein, his show lead singer syndrome is amazing. Uh, hoping to have Shane on this show very soon. Uh, my buddy, Dewey we help us over at pure pleasure podcast? I'm trying to work out the details. I think I'm going to be on his show. He's been on my show. So maybe I'll have him back for a part two. Uh, Ray Harkins from the band taken his show. 100 words or less stellar, stellar conversation. You guys have to go check that out. Basically anything on Jabberjaw. I love it kind of inspired me to do this podcast. So I'm really excited to join the family and uh, I have not stopped talking about it. So you guys get to hear about it again. Uh, At the beginning of the episode, you heard my buddy Rick Thorne, who has a podcast as well. Go check out the Rick Thorne show. Uh, He was on the show a long time ago and he was, you know, he called me and left me a little message about congratulating me. So Thanks to Rick and thanks to everybody over at Jabberjaw, but I'm going to stop jabbering my jaw and I'm going to get out of here. So I'm going to play a couple songs by Slade. And let me see what songs I'm going to play. I've got a bunch here. I got to pick a couple of them. So I'm going to play the song Below, and then I'm going to play my favorite song by Slade. It's called Drinking Day's And I think you guys are going to love it. So make sure to support Slade and check it out. But that's going to do it for me for this week. Make sure to come back next week when my guest will be Mr. Kevin Martin from the band Candlebox. Man, Candlebox is such an amazing band. I've been a fan of theirs since since as far back as I can remember. I mean, they toured with Metallica. They did so much crazy stuff. So come back next week for my conversation with Kevin, which today is his 50th birthday. So shout out to Kevin if you're listening. But uh, you guys are going to have to wait for that for next week. But I'm going to get out of here. It is getting super late and I'm tired. So thank you for joining me for Slade's episode. And we're going to listen to some Slade right now. So I'll see you guys next week. Thanks a lot for all the support.
4: There's an older road just off Route 9. It fades into the lake at the low water line. Sometimes I wander down that road alone Remembering the town that I once called home I grew up in the valley, every neighbor a friend Until the modern world started creeping in One day came the lawyers with cash in hand They swore that our village Would light up the land The dusky waters Move cold and slow And the ghosts of the village Still wander below Homesteads of families And friends forevermore Haunting the valley Below this sparkling shore, surrounding the valley was a painted red line drawn by company men, like marking a, mark a crime—a silent reminder that all inside it must go or be lost to the rising dead rivers flow. Some folks took the money Started grinding gears While the rest of us held out For twenty-odd years We watched our town Like a photograph of As the company came To take it all away They tore down the church Schoolhouse burned They dug up the graves The wheels of progress turned They got Dutchie's store and Haven's pool hall When the dozers rolled It shattered us all The dusky waters Moved cold and slow And the ghosts of the village still wander below Homesteads of families and friends forevermore Haunting the valley below this sparkling shore Savage Stayed as long as she could Her house On the hill Towered over the flood It rose Up alone In the dark of night Its face On the water In the cold moonlight I shake Off the memories On my lips Of prayer Thanks for the grace and the beauty down there. Now, while the porch lights glow all over the state, there's nothing but darkness under the lake. The dusky waters move cold and slow, and the ghosts of a village. Still wander below Homesteads of families and friends forevermore Haunting the valley below this sparkling shore They haunt the valley below this sparkling shore Say they're gonna miss me But who could ever tell I never knew what time it was Till closing time came round My drinking days are over But I'm still trouble bound I used to hang at the horseshoe You'd see me spinning at the broken spoke my gal to the gaslight. We lived on whiskey and smoke. Don't know how it all started, didn't mean to hurt no one. Some bad looking what's done can't be undone. Well, it was way past midnight, I met a horror out last call. I turned around and wrangling wrong was headed for a brawl. I didn't know that other guy was a cop. I guess I didn't care. And sometimes you gotta act like you got a pair. My drinking days are over. No more nights at the carousel. No more fights, no more neon lights I guess it's just as well I never knew what time it was close and time came round My drinking days are over But I'm still troubled by There for a while Staring out a mesh window Mile after mile I don't have any regrets Well, maybe just a few But a man's gonna do What he's gonna do And if my drinking days are over No more nights at the carousel My buddies say they're gonna miss me They can go to hell I never knew what time it was Till closing time came around My drinking days are over I'm still troubled by I never knew What time it was Till closing time came round My drinking days are over I'm still trouble bound My drinking days are over